You know, I'm always amazed uh, when we consider the Word of God, which we'll be doing this morning, that in John 1, 1, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you might say in the beginning of beginnings before beginnings ever began was the Word. And it's not inconsistent that God would choose to communicate to us through His Word, right? That's what we call the Bible, the Word of God, and we'll be considering that today, and just remember that that began before anything began, was the Word, and the Word was God, so God is a communicator. He is one who tells us who He is, what He wants, in no uncertain terms. This morning, as we continue our series on Church Basics 101, as we're calling it, we're going to take the month of February and look at the worship of the church as a corporate body, and we want to discuss from Scripture why we do what we do when we gather together on Sunday morning as the church. For instance, why do we preach the Word? Why is the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, so important as the church gathers? Why is it so important that we come to church? Why is the church indispensable? Why is God only doing that one thing in the world, building His church, as He says in Matthew 16? Uh, Why do we fellowship, stimulating one another to love and good deeds? Why do we take an offering? We'll talk about giving. Why do we sing? Why are all these things so important to the life and worship of the church? Is it tradition or is it a mandate from God and His Word? These are some of the things we want to look at as we consider the corporate worship of the church during the four Sundays in February, and it should be a very enlightening, very exciting time, and hopefully it will be as challenging as last month as we looked at the character of the church, the importance of The local church, the unity, diversity, and mutuality of the church body, the growing church as we all move toward Christ-likeness and sanctification, and the committed church as Pastor Craig laid out last week. Hopefully this will be a very enlightening month for us all. Why do we do what we do when we come together on Sunday morning? Why do we do what we do when we have Bible studies and so on and so forth? Uh, Now, just to get your minds headed in the right direction of understanding what a worshiping church is, I want us all to turn to Acts chapter 2, and I want us to look at what took place at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. We'll just briefly look at this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. It says, so then, Peter had just finished an incredible sermon, if you're a preacher, you would be happy to give this sermon anytime, anywhere. He said, and it says, and those who had received his word were baptized that day. They were identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. That's an interesting thing, that 3,000 people began the first church that ever existed. It must have been a very uh, awesome task for the apostles to figure out what to do. But it says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread or communion, to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many 
wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their possessions and property and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Incredible scene just to kind of imagine in your mind, isn't it? It says they were praising God, having favor with all the people. Everybody around was looking at this, what was transpiring, and they were just drawn to it. And it says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Incredible picture is being painted there of the early church. Now, I'm not saying this is the standard for every time the church gets together, but all the key elements of worship are there. There is devotion. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion. Christ was the focus of all they did. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to caring for one another. They were uh, they gave as anyone might have need. They worshiped day by day with one mind in the temple, taking communion together, again celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ, taking their meals together, fellowshipping with gladness and sincerity of heart, it says, praising God and worshiping God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily. When you think of this scene, it's hard to resist, isn't it? Crowd is always hard to resist. That's why a mob creates a bigger mob, right? They saw this, what was going on, and the people outside were wondering what it was, and they would find out quickly that it was because of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation. Fast forward to the individualized Christianity of the 21st century, particularly in America and the Western civilization, and maybe you can understand why we are losing ground, losing influence losing our focus on those elements of worship that really draw people to Christ as we seek to exalt Christ. We've gone somewhat from communion with Christ and with one another to consumerism where it's all about the individual. Whereas worship really is a corporate experience, isn't it? It's individual, but it's corporate. It's uh, the church getting together to worship the God of the universe and the excitement and joy and uh, praising God, having favor, the worship. And people are drawn to that. They see a reality in that that they see nowhere else. Usually when a mob gets together in our world, it's violent and vicious. But not the church. It should be loving and caring and worshiping the one true God. And I won't, I won't say we need to get back to the first century form of worship, but I will say we need to make sure that what we are doing exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and comes from a thoroughly biblical perspective from the words we preach to the, gospel, the songs we sing to the prayers we pray to the fellowship we share with one another. God's word is always the standard, and by it, we're to measure all things, whether they're from God, or whether it's just a nice idea that somebody might have. And that applies especially to our worship as we gather together to exalt the Lord Jesus. I think today's church, by and large, needs to heed those words. Is it biblical? 
Is it from God's word? Does it honor God? Are we really worshiping God or are we kind of like worshiping ourselves? Is it, is it the music and the, the beat of the music and all that stuff that turns us on or is it the words? Or is it both? They can work in harmony, right? But I don't care how the beat is, if the words are wrong, there's something wrong with the song. Or if the preacher's up there and he kind of gives uh, lip service to the Bible and then he tells you ten principles of how he became a better human being, something's wrong. The Word needs to be at the center of everything. God's Word needs to be driving everything. Now that said, this morning's message is on the issue that we are a Word-centered church. Our primary focus is on the Word of God and all that entails with the main objective of exalting the God of the Word who alone is able to save and transform lives and who alone is worthy of our worship. Now when people ask me to describe our church, I tell them we are not a Bible-based church. I tell them we are a Bible-believing church and there is a huge difference. You know, a preacher can get up here and he can use a Bible verse and throw a little sanctified salt on things and, and then you hear his opinion on everything. Or he can preach the word. He can actually reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction and use God's word to do it. Uh, there is a huge difference. We are a Bible-believing church and we make every attempt we can to understand and preach and teach the word of God in its historical grammatical context, giving it present-day application as we truly believe there's only one interpretation, but many applications. And as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, we diligently strive to present ourselves to God as workmen who need not be ashamed, cutting straight the Word of God. We're not trying to deviate. We're not trying to come up with something new. We're not trying to create some new wind that will blow through the church and everybody get excited about it for 40 days. That's not our deal. Consistently, day after day, Sunday after Sunday, we teach and preach God's Word with the purpose of seeing a biblical church, seeing the truth proclaimed. Next verse in that passage goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2.15, 2.16 says, So avoid worldly and empty chatter. <laughs> There is a ton of worldly and empty chatter in the church today. Not in our church necessarily, but in the church by and large. I'm talking in broader terms. There's a lot of worldly and empty chatter, it says, which leads to further ungodliness, and this talk spreads like gangrene. I don't think it's any wonder that when the church is switched from preaching the Word of God to preaching whatever people want to hear that the moral condition of this country just took a huge nosedive. You don't have to be a scholar or a rocket scientist to figure that one out. It leads to further ungodliness and it spreads like gangrene. Anybody ever had gangrene? You know, gangrene is that kind of thing. It starts somewhere and if you don't watch it, it will spread to your whole body and kill you unless it's treated properly. That's what worldly and empty chatter, that's what the thoughts of man does. It starts and then it just spreads and it 
causes sepsis in the whole body. Then he names names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Another thing that's not popular today is we, we seem to be afraid to name names of guys who were, I, I was proud of Steve a few, about a month ago who when he was talking about a false teacher and he named the name. It wasn't just in general broad terms. They need to be called out. They need to be dealt with. He says, men who have gone astray from the truth, and thus they have set the faith of some. As I said two weeks ago, there are a lot of charlatans out there. A lot of guys with big toothy grins and nice TV programs and good music, and, and they're teaching falsehood. You need to be discerning. You need to be biblically discerning to deal with that. You see... The goal is to preach the Word of God in its fullness as it is presented in Scripture, thus enhancing the faith of many. Because we believe the more faithfully we present the Word of God and the God of the Word, the more God's hand of blessing will be on His people. Because the more we get to know the Word of God and the God of the Word, the more sound our theology is, and the more sound our theology is, the more solid our lives will become. Because solid lives are based on a good foundation, the Word of God. You grow the life on that foundation. If you grow it on any other foundation, it starts off crooked, and it ends up like the Eiffel Tower, about ready to drop. Or is that the Leaning Tower of Pizza? Okay, okay. The Eiffel Tower is okay. I had a saving thought there. I think the Holy Spirit just reminded me. The Leaning Tower of Pizza. Or like the Tower of Siloam that fell on all those people in uh, Jesus' account in Luke. And, and uh, you don't build on the right foundation. You don't have the right practice. You build on the right foundation, then you have sound practice. You've got solid lives. Now, in our time remaining, I want to look at a passage we're all very familiar with, and I want to answer the question, why is the Word of God central to our worship? And how do we continue to be a Word-centered church? So I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning in verse 16, and a lot of you, if you're in Awana, can probably quote these verses, and they're good verses to have in your mind. They're great verses, awesome verses. And as we look at uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, and we'll be considering down through chapter 4, verse 5, um, I want us to look at this passage, and I want us to see a series of three why and how discussions that Paul brings about. How you, how, or why and how. Why it's important, how you do it. Okay, very simple. It's a lot of common sense. I was telling Coleman before the service, I said, this won't be uh, anything real deep, but it'll have a lot of common sense in it, and common sense seems to be, have been thrown out the door for the most part in our society. So this is just common sense that Paul is getting across to us in these seven or eight verses. To begin with, look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and I'm just going to 
read part of verse 16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. And then verse 17, it says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's a connection there. God's word's inspired. It's literally theopanoustos, the, the breath of God, the spirit of God, and it equips a man for every good work. That's the why. That's why God's word is so important. Simply put, all of God's word was given by God so that we might worship and serve him acceptably and be equipped for every good work he might wish to perform through us. Because we don't come up with our own good works, do we? God performs his work through us. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not the originator of good works. God is as he works in and through his people. That's the point. Too many people are coming up with their own thing these days. It has nothing to do with Scripture. And what are those good works? Well, they're spelled out repeatedly in the Word of God, the Word of God that gives us the mind of Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.16 says. But we have the mind of Christ. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing, what? One another. That's the why. It's God's inerrant, inspired, authoritative word, and it equips us to love and serve and worship the God of the word as well as to serve one another. Now, how does that happen? Look at verse 16 again. It's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How does it happen? Well, it happens when our worship is word-centered and we teach it. And how does the Holy Spirit tell us to teach it? First of all, by reproving. Reproving is not fun. The Greek word legmos carries the idea of rebuking in order to convict the person of misbehavior or false doctrine. And the way to correct false sinful practices or false doctrine is to preach the truth, point out the error, uncover the sin, expose the evil, confront the error, rebuke. Not very popular in our society today that's all inclusive and everybody can do anything they want and and we're to tolerate every kind of perversion you can imagine. But we're told to rebuke with the word of God. Because it's the inspired thoughts and mind and heart of God being expressed. And when you see a brother in sin or you see the sin of society, you don't get sucked into the vortex of compromise. And just say, well, you know, boys will be boys. We're only human. Well, you know, it's just happening and, you know, who cares? We don't react to the world that way. We don't react to the sin in our life or in the life of another like that, but we reprove. We show them where it's wrong. But it doesn't stop there, does it? We teach to correct, he says. We don't only expose untruth, but we correct with God's truth. We confront the sin and... Um, 
with the Word of God, we bring the Word of God to bear on it, and we try to be helpful to bring about change in the person's life. This is not about self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness just says, yeah, I got it together, and you're scum. Okay, that's kind of how we, we, we approach the world oftentimes, right? You know, they're just messed up, and they are messed up, let's face it. Uh, but this isn't about self-righteousness. It doesn't stop with us. We correct with the truth. We go to our brother who's in sin, Matthew 18, and we confront him, and if he repents, we've won our brother. If not, we take two or three, and we go to him, and, and if he repents, we've won our brother. If not, we take it to the church, and the church goes to him or her and, and confronts them, and if we win them, we've won our brother. If not, it says treat them like a tax gatherer and a sinner. Why? Because there's no proof that they really belong to Christ by the way they're living. So we reprove and we correct with the word of God. And then if that person listens, if we want our brother, the, and God opens their hearts to make, we make disciples, mathetuo, learners, we train in righteousness. And we saw two weeks ago that training goes on for a lifetime until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's when the job's over. The job's over when the person dies and goes to heaven and is perfected. It's never over until then, right? That's why we teach the Word of God in season, out of season, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, discipleship after discipleship after discipleship. The Word of God is, is infinitely important. So we see the first why and how. This is God's inspired word, and we are to teach it by reproving, by correcting, by training in righteousness. That's the first reason our worship is word-centered, apart from the fact that God is the living word. Now, let's look at the second who and why, or why and who. <laughs> I get those mixed up. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy says, and listen to it. Can you imagine getting this charge? And I believe this is made to every pastor and every church ultimately. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You know, I, I sat under a preacher who was a great preacher, the word still is. And people go, oh, he's so hard. Yeah, my response was, no, he's so biblical. He's not smoozing you, he's not telling you what you want to hear. He's not making it easy. He's just telling you the truth of God's Word and bringing it to bear on your life. And if you don't like that, you know, go find something that, uh, you know, where they'll smooze you right into hell. And I hate to put it that bluntly, but that's how blunt it is. The second why our worship is Word-centered is that this is a divine calling, a divine mandate. 
To avoid it is to flagrantly be disobedient to God and to our calling, both as a church and as pastors. Flagrantly disobedient. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you will incur a stricter judgment. I'm not sure I want to be in my own shoes when I'm judged for how I conducted myself as far as preaching the word. And I know when I listen to some others, I would definitely not want to be in their shoes. God will bring judgment to bear on how truthful we were with the word of God as far as preaching. Frankly, I believe this is one of the most or possibly the most solemn charge and mandate in all the Bible. Preach the word. For a preacher or teacher to disobey to any degree whatsoever is a sin of major proportions. For a church to ignore it and settle for anything less is flagrant disobedience. You know, I was in a situation one time where... uh, they were calling a pastor, and I, I was just part of the congregation at the time. I said, well, what are his credentials? Well, he grew up in Laguna Beach. I was like, what? And within months, this guy had just destroyed the church. He was not a preacher of the Word. He could care less about what the Word of God said. But he came from Laguna Beach. He grew up here as a kid. And then he was going to pastor a church in Laguna. That does not qualify a guy for anything. It's the Word of God and his commitment to the Word of God to preach and teach it that qualifies a man for the pulpit. To disobey that is a total meltdown of the pastor-teacher's calling and the reason the church exists. Now again, how are we to preach it? Well, it tells us in verse 2, in season and out of season. That's not just an agricultural term. But it's when it's popular and when it's not. In our day and age, I would say the Word of God is not that popular. It was in the 70s when the Jesus movement was going on and everybody was, you know, had their one-way sign and everybody was doing the one-way thing. And, and then it... Uh, it seems the word of God and the truth have fallen into disfavor in recent times. But you know what? We still preach it. We don't compromise it. We don't back away. We don't try and wait for the next big thing to blow through the church. We keep preaching the word. We keep teaching God's word. We keep dealing with the truth. When it's popular and when it's not. And Not only that, he says, but be ready. The idea is that of, uh, on a moment's notice, to be ready to preach the word anywhere, at any time, to anyone. In order to do that, you've got to, what? Know the word. That's why seminaries are so valuable that train men in the word. Like the ones Craig went to, like Talbot Seminary, uh, uh, Southern Baptist seminaries, the various reform seminaries, a lot of, a lot of good Dallas, di- different seminaries are teaching the word. They're training men to preach the word. That's so important because that filters down to the congregation, to the sheep, and they will become people of the word. If not, they become whatever the pastor is 
whatever his spiel is at the time. And again, how's that done? Well, by reproving faulty, sinful practices or doctrine, Matthew 18 again, by rebuking, letting the person know the seriousness of their sinful practices or faulty theology according to the Word of God, that's our standard, always the Word of God. You compare, there's always got to be a standard. If there's no standard, anything goes, right? We can rationalize anything in our lives until we come up to a standard. That's why the Constitution of America is so important. There's a standard by which we're to operate, not what you feel is right. That's why the Word of God is so important in the church. It's not what you feel, what your emotions tell you, but it is the Word of God and how does whatever you're experiencing measure up to the Word of God. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong somewhere. And it's not the Word of God. That's always our standard. Then after rebuking, reproving, it says by exhorting them to proper biblical practices or theology. And, and doing that with all patience or great patience, as the NASB says. I love that. I've often said that's job security right there because the job is never, ever done. There's been never been a night, never been a day after I preached where I go, well, they got it. They've all got it. We don't need to do this anymore. They all understand. They're all walking with Jesus. They're all just, wow, what a church. I mean, we got a great church, and I love everybody in it, and it's a wonderful ministry, but you know what? We still have a long way to go in our maturity to become Christ-like, don't we? I mean, it's not something that all of a sudden, zap, one sermon and it's over. Or one teaching, one Bible study, and man, you got it, and you've got it the rest of your life. If you're in that boat, uh, something's, wrong. something's wrong. But uh, we do it with great patience. All patience is literally what it reads. Why? Because we rarely get it the first or second or third time. I was in a church up in Oregon where well, I was preaching on something, and I must have hit the point a hundred times. And finally, one of our elders comes up, and he goes, you know what I just discovered today? I go, what? And he told me exactly what I'd been telling him for about a hundred sermons. And I go, wow, that's really good, you know. <laughs> wow. I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. Wow, what will personal Bible study do for you? But, you know, I mean, it was kind of funny because we rarely get things quickly. So we keep at it. We persevere. We stay true to the truth. We don't try to find an easier way as so many do today. We still call sin, sin. We call hell, hell. We still call perversion what it is, perversion. We love the sinner, but we don't minimize his sin. So we see the second why and how. Why? Because the preacher and the church is divinely mandated and charged to preach the Word of God as the main menu of the church, to preach Christ and His Word, and how to be ready at all times, especially when the church is gathered. You know, if I got up here and I gave a little sermonette for Christianettes, you know, a little 15-minute ditty, 
You know what I'd do? I'd be starving you to death. Craig would be starving you to death. Steve would be starving you to death. And we're going to see in a moment that you probably would happily starve to death. That's why the onus is always put on the teacher and the preacher. There's a third why and how here, and that's in verses 3 through 5. Let's read that. He says, For the time will come, I would say the time has come, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting, that word wanting is not there, but the thrust of the passage would warrant it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their truths, their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So why are we, we to be a word-centered church? Why is the word of God central to our worship? Because people are easily led astray. In fact, I would go so far as to say they want to be led astray. Did you get that? For the most part, people want to be led astray. Why? Because of their fleshly desires, their, their wants, their cravings, whatever. And everybody, everybody likes to be told when they do something wrong that it's okay. In fact, it's what you should be experiencing, <laughs> right, when you're led astray. And that's what false teachers will do. They'll continue to uh, make people feel good about their lousy lives. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And remember, sound doctrine is the basis for a sound life. Squidgy doctrine, squidgy life. In fact, the time has come, even in what calls itself the evangelical church. The, the truth is often hard to bear in a compromised, sinful society. It's so easy to float downstream with an increasingly corrupt culture. Some of the things that the, quote, evangelical church is, is actually tolerating, it just blows my mind. You know, God's word is a straight line. It doesn't deviate. It doesn't go, oh, okay, you got a little thing here, and okay, now, you know, you can deviate there. It's straight line. Truth is truth. Truth is true a million years ago. It will be true a million years from now. But what's happening today is as the world get, goes like this, the church is staying just a little bit above it. You know, we're a little bit more righteous. But that's not the point. We want our righteousness to be established in Christ and in his word, not by what the culture is doing. Wanting to have their ears tickled. This is not something that just happens to people, but something they seek out. It's something they want and desire. Our flesh is easily coerced. Give me that good old free, good feel sermon and keep it short. Keep it real short. To the point they'll accumulate, it says, teachers in accordance to their own desires. Uh, they crave men or women who will tell them what they want to hear. Teachers, Philippians 3.19, who are just like them, whose God is their appetites, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. They want teachers who pander to their sinful, fleshly nature. 
or for that matter, politicians. Thought about that? What's happening today? You know, why we're moving to socialism? Socialism works because everybody gets everything for free, supposedly, until the horse dies. Everybody gets a free ride. But then the horse dies and there's chaos. Ask the Venezuelans. It doesn't work. You know, we work hard at serving the Lord. We work hard at living our life according to his word. We're not saved by those works, but it sure speaks loudly of Christ when we live a life that's worthy of him. Then he says they'll turn aside the myth. The word for myth in Greek is muthos, and it connotes a real or fictional story or a recurring theme or character type that appeals to the consciousness of a people. That's why like superheroes are so uh, worshipped today. But it embodies its cultural ideals or uh, it gives expression to deep commonly held convictions or emotions or wants. That's the word muthos. That's why we have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Why? Because people want to be healthy and they want to be rich. Panders to their flesh. That's why we have the uh, self-actualization gospel. Why? Because people are full of themselves, basically. Uh, that's why we have the be-all-you-can-be gospel. People want to be all they can be, you know, visualize it, incubate it, create it, you know. Muthos is also at the heart of secularism, that you were not created, but uh, you evolved. and There is no God, no designer. It just happened, so you're your own God. Wow, who can resist that? It's at the heart of humanism, that man evolved to the top of the food chain, and that's really where he belongs because he's the king of the beasts. Muthos describes all the false religions and philosophies of man, which are ultimately just myth in the final analysis when compared to the truth of God's word. Only God's word is eternal. Only God, God's word saves. You know, I love 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul spells out the gospel. He says, he says uh, for I delivered you of first importance what I will also receive, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures. In other words, hundreds of years prior to this, God has told us how he was going to do things, and then Christ came and it happened. And that he was buried and he rose on the third day, what? According to the scriptures. This isn't just something we made up. It's not just a good idea, be saved. No, it's, it's be saved because God says that's how you get saved, and he predicted it hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming, Christ Kept saying, kill me, and three days later I rise from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and he did, and that was also predicted hundreds of years prior. So who are you going to believe? All the dead guys, or are you going to believe the one who rose from the dead? I mean, it's just simple common sense. Simple, simple common sense. That's the amazing thing. You know, I've always said that faith is having a profound sense of the obvious. So we see why our worship is word-centered. It's so easy and so appealing to we humans to be led astray. Sheep are not bright animals. 
I'm not a bright animal, but I can understand God's word. And that's the important thing. God is bright. He is the light of the world. So how do we counteract that? Well, he just says in verse 5, but you, Timothy, or Titus, well, anybody that <laughs> studies the word, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, keep doing what we're doing. There's no easy way. Preach, the, preach God's word when it's popular, when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Be righteously sober, vigilant, endure hardship and persecution when it comes. Spread the gospel, fulfill your ministry to the end. Don't worry about being cutesy and relevant. Preach the word, pastor. Preach the word, church. That's why we're word-centered. Preach it. Sage words to preachers and churches that live in a culture that's constantly changing and spiraling downward. Don't get caught in the vortex of compromise because it's so easy to float downstream. Old Pappy Revere used to say, keep on keeping on. And that's what we're going to do because we are a church whose worship is centered on the Word of God. We are a Bible-believing church, not Bible-based, but Bible-believing a gospel-preaching church. We actually believe the gospel is the only gospel that saves. There's no other name under heaven by which it is appointed for men to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. They're, all pathways do not lead to heaven. We are not a coexist church. We are a word-centered church, and I might add, to the end. That's the why and the how. God's word is central to our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that you have not left us in the dark, but you've given us the light of your word. And Lord, that light shines so brightly in the darkness that uh, men either come to it like a moth or they are scattered by it like a cockroach. And so, God, we just pray that we'd continue to proclaim it no matter what the society is doing, no matter what men may think, we pray that we will continue to be faithful to your word as we have endeavored to be. And so, God, thank you that the word is at the center of our worship as a church. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.